Hello, welcome to the podcast on consciousness with Bernard Bars. Open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. I'm Nat Geld, this show's producer. We would love to thank our listeners for tuning in with a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's new book on consciousness. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, and I'll spell it, S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com, and be sure to enter the word books, B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for your 50% savings. Of course, they're available everywhere books are sold, although your VIP discount Account is only available in the Nautilus shop. Right here with me is Bernie Bars, the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, and Global Workspace Dynamics, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex and consciousness, and one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. Hey Bernie, good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, and good afternoon to you. Thank you, thank you. You know, we're doing something really cool today, Bernie, something new and different, a student interview. We have a special guest of honor, of course, cognitive neuroscientist, Dr. Heather Berlin is back with us, yay. And upper division student, Ilian Daskalov, who is studying cognitive science at UC Irvine, is our guest student interview today. Hi, Ilian, welcome. Hi, Nat, thanks for having me, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Hi, Heather. Uh, You are most welcome to our podcast called Unconsciousness. And I'm especially interested uh, in a profound problem that shows up in life everywhere, really. Uh, And especially in psychoanalysis, I think, where the purpose, I believe, of uh, Freud's type of psychoanalyst Uh, psychoanalysis, uh, was to help people become adults. And by adults, I think what Freud meant is somebody who's able to encounter all the ups and downs of life in a very mature way and in a balanced and civilized way and in a way that goes beyond what young children are able to do or that people who are very... Uh, troubled uh, are often able to do, or people who are addicted, uh, people with serious problems in life. And so the purpose of psychoanalysts, as I understand it, is essentially to grow up. And that means to balance one's impulses in a way that works. And tell me if, if that's all wrong from your lights, or if there's something to that, and how that thought, if it is your thought, how that has shaped your work? Yeah, for me, a a constant theme in my research has been trying to understand the neural basis of impulse control. And I do think, I don't think everything Freud said was correct, but I do think there were certain things within his theory of the mind and psychoanalysis that were Um, And this idea that we grow into um, civilized people by learning how to control our basic animalistic instincts and desires or or impulses um, really maps well onto what we're understanding about the neural basis of um, impulse control using modern technology like neuroimaging and psychopharmacology. So I think that, 
you know, he really had a lot right about that. And I often hearken back to Freud um, because he really, it was the foundation for a lot of the, the ideas that, you know, then went on to take on a life of its own. Um, but I think it's really great to make these analogies between how we understand how the brain works and classic psychoanalytic theory. Good. And obviously you've gone beyond the, the, the classic, classical theory by virtue of your discoveries with other scientists on the nature of uh, self-regulation, impulses, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was sort of, obviously like all science, it, it you know grows and it develops and it adds and it modifies. And so we took some of that basic knowledge and, and sort of understanding of the mind and then mapped on our understanding of the brain um, and see how those things interrelate. And so a lot of the work, yeah, has, has added to um, and uh, kind of modified as well some of these ideas. But, but, but Freud really, in many ways, had, was the foundation for a lot of modern thinking and, and how we understand um, the psyche. So, Heather, how did you get interested in this very profound set of questions in your work? I got interested in uh, impulse control, mostly because I got interested in what makes us human. And I became sort of obsessed with understanding the functions of the prefrontal cortex, which I felt was part of our brain that made us distinctly human. And a large part of what that, the function of that part of the brain has to do with impulse control, emotional regulation. And I think in the very simple um, fact that we have this capacity for impulse control and emotional regulation has allowed us to build civilizations um, and, and technology and buildings and societies. So I think that impulse control is a key component in what it means for us to be human and what differentiates us from other primates. Thank you. Uh, today, Ilian, as you know, we are having Heather Berlin as our guest, uh, guest brain scientist and psychologist. And I would like you please to pose some questions to our guest, uh, whatever you think is going to be the most interesting and important about her point of view and her research. Of course, Bernie, thank you very much, with pleasure. Hey everyone, it is a pleasure to be here. Uh, firstly, I want to thank Bernie for having me as a student guest interviewer today. And I wanted to welcome Dr. Heather Berlin back to the podcast on consciousness. Thanks for having me, I'm happy to be back. It is truly our pleasure. Um, so I just wanted to uh, introduce Heather to our listeners. Uh, Dr. Berlin is a trained neuroscientist and a clinical psychologist. She's also an assistant clinical professor in psychiatry at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Her interests range from consciousness to creativity and psychedelics. In addition, Dr. Berlin is one of the most notable science communicators of our time. She co-hosts the TV series Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson and has made numerous appearances on Netflix, BBC, History Channel, and National Geographic. 
In addition to science communication, Dr. Berlin is passionate about destigmatizing mental illness and promoting women in STEM. Dr. Berlin, it is a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me and thanks for that intro. Uh, of course. Um, so Dr. Berlin, I want to start off by saying that while I was doing my research for this podcast, I couldn't help but notice how many interests we have in common. Um, so you're someone who I very much look up to. So I just wanted to start off by saying thank you for having this conversation with me. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. I'm happy. I'm happy to, in any way, if I can help motivate people and inspire them, then it's a real joy for me, actually. So I'm glad. Well, that's great. Um, so I want to uh, kick off things with a simple question. What makes someone a good science communicator? In other words, how do you get a message to effectively alter the neuronal networks of your audience's brains? <laughs> I like how you put that. You know, I think there's no one right way to communicate science. Everybody has their kind of forte. Some people are really good at writing and that's how they communicate. Others, it's more, you know, just giving interviews and talking. Some are really good on camera. Some make YouTube videos. So I really think, first of all, is to find what you're good at, you know, what medium you might be best at. You know, my husband raps about science, right? That's his medium. And then start to cultivate that. But I think the kind of overarching theme that runs across them all is about connecting with people. I think on an emotional level, on a personal level, because sometimes the science can be very sort of abstract and objective. And that's what we want with science. You know, it's objective. It's not amenable to our subjectivity. But at the same time, that can feel um, very clinical, distant. And the idea is to help people understand how the science is relevant to their daily lives, how it's meaningful, you know, what it means to them. And even if it's just inspiring a sense of awe, like, I don't know if you're talking about astrophysics, maybe it doesn't have any direct impact on your daily life, but, you know, the awe of just living in this universe and the enormity of it. So I think it's about inspiring people and in increasing their kind of interest and our brain wants interest it likes novelty it gets the sort of dopamine hit when you give it new information so it, it's all about that sort of capturing attention and getting people excited about the information which um, i think is really important especially when dealing with things like public health issues for example mm -hmm. um well i think i'm one of those addicts to uh getting that kind of uh, dopaminic rush by yeah. getting new information. Um, so you recently got interviewed by Sophia the Robot. Uh, what was that like as an experience? How close did it resemble a conversation like the one you and I are having, for example? And with that in mind, what is your opinion on the future of AI? Where are we going with that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, it's almost like when you're watching a film, it's like, you know, it's not real. But, you know, you have that suspension of disbelief so that you allow yourself to kind of engage and emerge, let's say, with the film. It's a similar with AI. You know, I was talking to Sophia and part of my brain was like, this is, you know, she doesn't really have consciousness. This isn't real. But 
you know, another part was, I mean, as naturally as humans, we anthropomorphize and we, things that sort of look like and act like they have consciousness, we tend to ascribe it to them. You know, like I used to talk to my stuffed animals when I was a kid. So it's kind of similar to that instinct where you just automatically ascribe and you start interacting with this AI system as if it's conscious, even though there's another little part in the back of your mind that knows that it's not. And what was the second part of your question? The second part is, where do you think we're going with the development of AI? Would we ever be able to create artificial general intelligence? Yeah. So I think there's a number of camps um, about whether these sort of AI systems will ever be conscious, depending on the theory of consciousness that you abide by or where there's the most evidence. But if, for example, on a number of that, including global workspace theory, and maybe Bernie can correct me if I'm wrong, and IIT, it just seems like you, there's something about the physical substrate that you know you need that I don't think that, you know, if it was a software program that you would necessarily get general AI. It's like simulating whether it's not going to actually be wet, but that you actually need to build a physical structure. It doesn't necessarily have to be out of biological substances. It could be out of silicon, but you need some sort of neuromorphic computer that has the same kind of functional connections that we have in our brain. But I just don't think that you would ever get it from like a software program. And even even in a non-biological system that you build, I'm still skeptical that consciousness it can be sub, is like sort of substrate independent like it can be reinstantiated in any system as long as it has the right kind of functional connections i just feel like and this is just i have no evidence to support this but i feel like there's something about the biological matter that it evolved within a human species over time in a body you know but i could be wrong that's just a sort of feeling i have but if it was going to happen i think it would be in some sort of actually building like a neuromorphic computer that could potentially have subjective states. Yeah, let me uh, jump in there, if I may. Uh, we don't have a single complete theory of consciousness. Not a single one. We are maybe at the beginning of building something, a scaffolding for understanding consciousness. Uh, but the idea that uh, we have a complete theory, in fact, even particle physics at this point, which is our most advanced scientific theory, is not complete. Uh, and it has all kinds of puzzles that keeps people awake at night. So, uh, so you have to understand that science is a process, uh, and, and we so far don't have a complete process of science. Uh, and that is certainly true for whatever scientific understanding we have of the conscious brain. Uh, the evolutionary history, the life developmental history, all those things uh, profoundly change. Uh, and, and your last five seconds of consciousness, by the way, all that has profoundly changed your brain and your mind. Uh, and so it's a little ambitious, I think, to expect us, expect us to have conscious robots uh, next year or in the next 10 years. And also, the, the age-old question is that if they were conscious or not, how would we know? You know, 
And we won't really know unless we have a agreed upon overarching theory of consciousness to know whether that AI system has it, does a fetus have it, does, you know, a, a bee have it. We won't really know because it's first person subjective experience and only that entity knows if it has it. And so the only way we outsiders can know is if we have a really all encompassing theory um, and that we can kind of test these different systems. So there's the question of whether they have it or not. And then the second level question is, how would we know if they have it? That is indeed very well put. Thank you, both of you, for answering my question, although slightly crushing my dreams in the process of it. So five to six years ago, I listened to a 30-minute audio of neuroscientist Sam Harris, who um, pretty much shattered my understanding on the topic of free will. So Dr. Berlin, from what I understand, you would also agree with him that free will is sort of a convenient illusion that we like to just play along with. Would you define yourself as a some type of a determinist? And if so, how does that change what you think or do in life? So I guess, and I'm not a philosopher, so forgive me philosophers if I get the terms wrong, but I think I would be maybe defined as like a compat- compatibilist. I agree with Sam Harris in that, and with other, and with many other um, neuroscientists, that based on the evidence, the sort of Cartesian definition of free will, the idea that if our brain was in exactly the same state, we could have done otherwise. Because that would mean that there had to be some sort of ghost in the machine, something other than our neurons firing, right? And there's no evidence for that. And then, of course, there's the classic Libet studies, which there's some they've been controversial, but like, you know, up to 300 milliseconds before you're even consciously aware of your intention, there's this sort of buildup in brain activation. And so I often would say that you don't, you don't have free, maybe your unconscious has free will in some, you know, respects, but you're kind of the last person to know about it. So I think that it's not all predetermined, that the brain is constantly taking in information and doing these calculations. And a really good analogy is kind of like waves coming in on the shore and they're like, some are smaller and some are bigger. And eventually like one comes in that hits a certain height, which is like a threshold. And that happens to come into consciousness, right? But it's, so it's a constantly changing process. And so I think it's, it's very hard to determine if at all, so that it's not necessarily deterministic, but we also don't have free will in the way that we'd like to have it, which is that, you know, there's a conscious eye that is, can supersede the, the neurons firing something called ghost machine. But I often just say like, yeah, maybe your, your unconscious is making the decision all the time. Maybe it has free will, so to speak, but it's not the kind of free will that we want in terms of that agency. Um, but even if we don't have free will, some people say, well, can I just commit a crime and say my neuron made me do it? But the answer is no, because we have evolved the capacity to have self-control and we hold people accountable for their actions to the extent that they have that capacity. So children have less of it. Animals have less of it. Um, people with frontal lobe brain damage have less of it. And, but the extent that we have the ability to control our impulses, then we hold people responsible, even though we don't have that more philosophical concept of free will. That's, that is very uh, insightful. Thank you. Uh, I like the wave analogy that you made. I want to be mindful of your time. So I just wanted to hit you with two quick questions. The first one is going to be what near 
and long-term future scientific discoveries are you most excited about? Mm, near and long-term. I think, well, I mean, how long-term are we thinking? 10 years, 20 years? What Let's say in the next 100 years. Oh, 100, okay. Well, I think the near-term, I'm most excited about these, about neural implants and how they can not only help treat psychiatric and neurological disorders, but maybe even we're moving towards things like eternal sunshine, the spotless mind, if you've seen that film, but memory erasure, and sort of people who've had trauma, traumatic memories, you know, going in and actually manipulating and, and changing those um, neural pathways. Um, and ultimately, I think, perhaps within our lifetime, cognitive enhancement, which is, you know, maybe increasing our memory capacity or decreasing our need for sleep, maybe increasing creativity and intelligence. So all that is, I think, perhaps within reach and pretty exciting. But the most exciting is the idea of perhaps curing psychiatric and um, neurological illnesses or helping, you know, modulate them to the extent that they're less um, destructive. And far off long-term, I think that it's going to go more down the thing. One of them is going to go more down the line of genetic modification so that we, you know, it's not about like, oh, by the time you get Alzheimer's and then we're trying to treat the brain when it's already sort of too late, like perhaps editing the genome in a way that we can actually, we can actually not even develop some of these psychiatric and neurological illnesses. But also ultimately, and although there's going to be ethical considerations, creating sort of superhumans with advanced, not only memory capacity, but perhaps advanced intelligence so much so that maybe we're able to understand the thing, our brain itself. You know, we were, we're, we're sort of have this, the brain itself is trying to understand itself and that might be restrictive. But if we maybe edit our genome to advance our intelligence that we might be able to break through that barrier perhaps. So those are some interesting things in the far future. And there'll also be implants that like, for example, you don't have to turn on your TV to watch it. They'll just directly stimulate like your visual cortex and your emotional areas in your brain. And you'll just, you know, be entertained internally whenever you kind of have the impulse to do so. So there'll be some interesting Developments if we don't kill ourselves first, which I don't know, there's a high, probably a high likelihood of that. We kill ourselves before we get these great technologies. But if we don't, there's a lot of fun things ahead. Uh, that is a very fun and grim future you're uh, painting there. <laughs> My last question was, what general advice do you have for students of neuroscience and psychology? Uh, so much advice. Let's see. I've think, well, number one is always follow where your interests take you. You know, I started out my career, I always had like a sort of general interest in the neural basis of consciousness. But, you know, when I was starting out, I would say, you know, like in the early 90s, there really wasn't this whole field, like you couldn't do a PhD and understand the neural basis of consciousness, right? And um, I remember when I, I said to my PhD supervisor, um, this was in like 2000, I was at Oxford and there were all these amazing intellectuals. And I said, like, I want to, you know, study consciousness. And even then, I mean, it was starting to emerge as a field. Like it started around 1994, this paper when Francis Crick and Christoph Koch sort of set out this field of the neural basis of consciousness as a legitimate scientific field. But 
even then he was like, oh no, you have to first do like a real neuroscience first. And then maybe like the last chapter of your book, you can write about, you know, consciousness. And so I started pursuing a lot of other things, impulse control in the brain, but always like a little bit tangential to the main thing I wanted to study. And even I got involved in creativity and was just in psychedelics, but they all relate to that issue of trying to understand the neural basis of consciousness. And now people can actually do PhDs in that. And it's like really emerging as, as a field. But I would just say that let your interests guide you and don't be afraid to kind of move and change. You don't have to stick with just one thing always, you know, you can, you can evolve over time. And also don't let anybody tell you no, like don't tell yourself no, basically. And even, even if other people tell you no, like just keep going, keep pushing, you know, until it's like, really, there's just no possibility of going further. Because I find that a lot of people either tell themselves no, and they kind of restrict themselves from, from taking risks. And then also the first time you hit a sort of barrier don't let it stop you. Like find a way around it. Keep going, you know, forge through. There's always going to be naysayers or people who say you can't possibly do that, but you really can do almost anything you really want. You put your mind to, you just keep going, keep going, keep going. And and don't let anybody stop you unless it's illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That is a very good ending. Thank you very much, Dr. Berlin, for doing this interview with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Bernie, thank you for having me as a a guest interviewer. Well, thank you, Elian. That was very good. Mm. I hope I, I, uh, I, I think Bernie, I was correct in my classification of the field of consciousness. Correct, like oh, for sure. Uh, it really uh, wasn't a thing. Well, you know, as as you know, of course, in science, we're always struggling. It never really ends. It's not as if we get to the top of the mountain and say hurrah and fly the flag. Uh, we just keep going, and that is the case with the brain. And now we're looking. Some people are looking in consciousness in very different animals, which is mind-boggling, and so on. So, so we keep on looking. Yeah, such an honor to be in this conversation with all of you. And Ilian, thumbs up. You did a great job and yeah, yeah. really you. appreciate your insightful questions. Thank you. I really that appreciate great. it. And Heather, once again, thank you so much for this. It was a truly an honor and a pleasure doing this with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Heather, for joining us for our student interview episode. And I hope that you have a beautiful day. We really appreciate your spending some time with us. It's so fascinating, everything that that you're involved with. And can't wait to learn more about what's next. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on the podcast on consciousness with Bernard Bars. As promised, to show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on consciousness, science, and subjectivity, updated works on global workspace theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books B-O-O-K-S in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course, 
Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also. B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S dot com. And thank you for listening.